0: Monster and Bear recognises Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first peoples of this place, now known as Australia.
1: We're grateful for the continuing care of the lands, waterways and skies where we listen, learn and create.
0: From here in Wurundjeri Country and from wherever you are listening,
1: we respect the elders of the past and present and we share our friendship and kindness. Hey everyone and welcome to episode 7 of So That's How It's Done, a podcast where we talk to talented professionals within the film and creative industry to find out how they get the cool stuff that they do done. My name is Jem Rankin and joining me is my co-host Tori Brennan. How are you going Tori?
0: Good, thanks Jem. How are you?
1: Very well, thank you.
0: That's good. We're here today with Sam McCarthy. Sam is a Monster & Bear alumni and now works at Crayon as a colourist, working primarily in the short form space. Sam, how are you?
2: I'm good. How
0: are you guys? <laughs> we're good. <laughs> we're great. Um, we're pretty excited. Uh, just a fun fact, before we started recording, we had to usher a cricket out of the room because <laughs> we didn't want anyone making awkward cricket sounds when we maybe fall into a moment of silence.
1: Now, if there are any, it's because we've added it later. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but nothing like a bit of team bonding to get into the podcast. Okay. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> that was just a bit of fun. We set that up for you. <laughs> Sam, I have to say, I think I've actually followed you on Instagram since like 2017, I was going into film school and I was like, oh, there's this guy. (laughs) (laughs) So I've actually had you on my radar for a while. And I know that there's a few people who I've mentioned that we're interviewing you and they're like, oh, cool. And so I'm really excited to have you on the show today because I think you're going to be able to fill us in with some good insight on Mm. A sort of niche, so. <laughs> and a niche area of film that I don't think a lot of people have mm. a lot of knowledge about. Mm. Before we get too much into it, I'd love to just sort of backtrack and talk a bit more about how you've gotten to where you are and just talk a bit more about like, did you always want to get into film? Did you always have color grading on your radar? Just kind of tell us about it.
2: Yeah, I definitely didn't always have color grading on my radar. I think color grading nowadays is becoming more known. But even back five to ten years ago when I was kind of getting into the industry and studying film and stuff like that, I had really never considered it as a career path. I just got into film because I knew I had to study something out of high school (laughs) and um, I just really liked film. I never really thought about like what I would do in film. I think like a lot of people, you'd think, oh, I'll be a director or I'll, you know, be on camera or something like that. But that's as far as it went. I was just doing something that I found interesting. And then it was very like a kind of organic flow onto one step after the other into becoming what I do now as a colorist. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So
0: what was your journey? So you went to film school and then what was your first gig out of mm. film school? And like what was the evolution of?
2: Yeah. So you went to film school did my bachelor's and then the year straight after my bachelor's I was very like oh my god I've got nothing to do what am I going to do and one of the faculty wanted me to do honours really wanted me to do honours I think it was just because they really needed students to do the honours (laughs) programme and I was like look I don't see anything happening this year anyway so I was (laughs) like yeah sure I'll do that and then halfway through that I ended up getting my first full-time employment which was Monster and Bear Oh. I was also before that doing a bit of uh, I was editing weddings at a company, which was you. Get very used to the idea that all weddings are the same and it's all formulaic, which sucks. Obviously, you don't you don't want to think like weddings that way, like, but you can't help it. And um, but that was really good because it gave me a really good experience becoming like fast at editing. Yeah, which okay. um you don't have to like necessarily make like big creative decisions. It's not like actually like editing a film or even editing like a commercial or a music video. But it was a really good introduction into getting good with the tools. So I had that job halfway through honors. I got the offer from Monster and Bear just because I'd been doing some volunteering on some sets at the time. I was thinking maybe I wanted to be like a camera assistant or something like that, like a little bit more on set stuff, which I always really enjoyed. And I still like I miss it to this day. I did really enjoy being on set. And so, yeah, I just volunteered on a few music videos with them and then happened to get a word in with the director. It's like, oh, I've got experience in post-production i can do after effects and stuff like that which i could but not that you know (laughs) not not (laughs) great and then i think they just needed the extra help and they were like you want to come on board and it was a dream come true at the time it's sure because you know like i was pretty much still fresh out of uni walking into like a full-time job in the industry i was like this is the best thing in the world yeah that's
0: (laughs) that's not necessarily very commonly No, no no no
2: yeah so i felt very privileged
0: yeah, that's awesome.
2: And that, what was that
1: role that they took mm. you on as? Was that in editing? It was
2: a little bit of just a like, we just want you here, all hands on deck. Right. If we need you on set, you'll be on set, camera assisting and stuff like that. But you've also obviously got experience in post-production with editing mm. and stuff. So we've also got a lot of that stuff coming through. I think I just looked like a person that was hungry for the knowledge and the education, like the hands-on. And I actually like could come into it with a little bit of knowledge already and skill that I didn't have to be like brought up from zero
1: kind of thing. Such a great intro to a company just going in and doing kind of like everything.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because they really fostered, and I say they, Monster and Bear, really fostered like the idea of like to figure out what
1: you want to do. Mm.
2: It was like a perfect opportunity to just be like, all right, I could have easily just fallen in love with the camera side of it. I could be speaking to you today as a cinematographer. You yeah, know? Yeah. Like if, yeah. If that was the path that I wanted to pursue. I think it did kind of happen at the time, Monster and Bear was almost becoming a little bit more of a post house just with, so much of the post work that was coming through. And so I did kind of have to do a lot more post than I think we initially thought I would have to do. Mm -hmm. But I never minded that. I was like, yeah, great. I really enjoy doing this. And I think that just naturally led to me being like, I think this is what I want to do. I want to pursue something in post. And it wasn't until later that I found out that that was color.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So then you were, I mean, when I started about two years ago, you were here doing editing Mm -hmm. and color grading. Mm -hmm. Was it started off with just editing and then kind of going into color a bit later? Or?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was definitely like mostly editing and a little bit of everything outside of that. So a bit of like compositing, cleanup work, yep. stuff like that. When I was brought on, color grading wasn't really something we even looked at much in our projects. If anything was done, it was Josh, who's the cinematographer the main cinematographer at the time. And that would mostly be what you'd call more like colour correction. It was Mm. more just like making sure that the shots kind of were cohesive with each other. But it wasn't necessarily like anything crazy with like, see if we can make this feel like something else. So I would just mostly edit and all that stuff until I can't remember exactly how far into my lineage at Monster and Bear that I kind of started getting into color. But I had mucked around with the software being DaVinci Resolve and I just started to muck around with some stuff. Like I've got all the footage that I can just play around. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so that's just kind of how it at least started my curiosity.
0: And so did you just make color grading sort of this thing that Monster and Bear ended up doing in their post-production workflow anyway. Yeah. Did you integrate that? Because we still do that now, even though you're no longer working with us. Yeah. And you were saying that they didn't before. So was it was it you?
2: <laughs> I don't want to say it was me completely but I, I was probably pushing them. It's like yeah. this is something that we should be offering because we can do it. And it was definitely me like, I had like no experience, but I was like yeah, we can do color now. We should offer that. <laughs> you know, uh, it's just something I wanted to, because I just wanted to pursue it and I just wanted them to invest in a proper monitor and stuff like that. So, yeah, like, sure. Because that was always the thing. It's like realistically we can't actually like charge professionally until we have yeah. like proper monitoring devices yeah. and stuff like that. But they backed that and they were like, "Yep, yeah, we can absolutely see the need for this. And eventually that's the route that they did
1: take. So what, what change do you think over like in tech or software that was mm. available to you or to everybody that kind of made mm. made it worth looking into? I mean, I came into it a little bit
2: after this big shift happened. So the software that I use is DaVinci Resolve, uh, which is uh, owned by Blackmagic Design. Yep. And um, that is... Largely touted as, like, one of the best deals that you could ever find in, like, post-production or, like, anything. It's it's a, it's pretty much a one-time, and I feel like I'm selling. <laughs> <for> like, Sponsored, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's just such a good deal, it's hard not to sound like you are. Um, it's, like, literally, like, a one-time purchase of, I don't, I don't know what it is now. It might be, like, four, around 400 bucks or something like that.
1: $459. There
2: you go. Just off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I mean, you can also get the free version, and you can operate... With, like really well off the free version mm. for like mm. most of what you need to get done. But at the end of the day, it's like you can justify that cost and it's um, it's such a supremely good software. Mm. You get really good support from Blackmagic. They're an Australian company as well. So we like that. Yeah. Also then being an Australian company, you tend to rub elbows with some people that actually work at Blackmagic yeah. like, Design, which is really cool just to be able to talk to them in the flesh. And,
0: and rub and, elbows.
2: And get, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and just get their ideas of like, yeah, you know, awesome. like well, what are they doing, what are they working on, and stuff like that. So yeah, so I think that software being widely available to everyone and just the support that they've put it has definitely been a big contributor to the kind of exposure of what we do, which is color grading. Um, DaVinci Resolve's may, like always their main thing was color grading, and they have since that now they are starting to try to be a fully fledged post production
1: mm. kind
2: of software. So they yeah. they kind of you can do it, you can run your entire post pipeline in DaVinci Resolve if you want, which I think is really cool. And they're getting better and better at that. As I said, their support and their updates are really good. So you know, like it's still to this day, most people will use like for editing, for example, most people will still use programs like. Adobe Premiere Pro or Avid or Final Cut. And there is still quite a bit of um, work to be done on my side of things. And this is maybe getting ahead, but of like what we call conforming projects from one editing software to DaVinci Resolve. But I am noticing in the past six months, there's been more people passing me their projects that they've done completely within DaVinci Resolve, which oh, is yeah. which is really cool because it makes my life a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs>
0: My friend, um, he's more of a colorist and less of an editor, Mm. but he's doing both for a project. And Mm -hmm. he's like, I decided to cut it in DaVinci, but he's like, I keep just wanting to color it while I'm editing. And he's like, this is the worst workflow.
2: I, I get that too, because I was an editor and a colorist for many years for both Monster and Bear and my freelance projects and I couldn't help but, like, make it as beautiful as I could during the offline. You're like, like, I can't work in these conditions. Yeah, Nobody (laughs) really cares. Like, as long as it doesn't look like it's logs, like a flat grey image, it's fine. But, yeah, that is also the beautiful thing about using something like DaVinci Resolve to do an edit and a grade is you can just jump in between both and it won't slow you down really. And I get it. Like you shouldn't, you should be paying attention to one thing at a time. (laughs) But it is really fun to be able to do that.
0: for sure. Mm. I think you've touched on this a little bit. So you've talked about colour correction is just making sure that scenes match each other Mm -hmm. visually. But can you explain more about like what colour grading is Mm. and the whole purpose behind it?
2: Yeah, sure. Some people will refer to the whole thing as one or the other. Like, oh, you do colour correction, you do colour grading. And it's Mm. like, I'd be like, yeah, Sure, but really there is a little bit of a difference where colour correction is more like, oh, you know, these the, the lighting of these two shots that are supposed to be within the same scene, the lighting on the day changed or whatever and they obviously look a bit different. Can we make them look like they're the same? So it's mm. cohesive and just nobody notices it. It's the same as it's like making a scene edit well or something like that where yeah. nobody notices the edits. Yeah. But then there's more grading, which... And you could kind of say correction definitely falls just into the moniker of grading, but grading is more like most often you're working with the cinematographer and or the director, but you're trying to create what we maybe just call a look Mm. to the piece. And often case, like a good example is like music videos will often strive for some kind of like pushed look. Yeah. You can usually get away with it in things like music videos and stuff like that a bit more than you can in say commercial, but that's not necessarily true. Commercial, it's just a different kind of look. Sometimes it's a bit more natural, but then it's like, you know, you're making the talent look, extra pretty or something like that (laughs) um but you know like a good example of it in terms of like a series like an actual narrative thing is a lot of people point to like a show like ozark Mm -hmm, like ozark has that really bluish greenish push that does look very unnatural if you were to look at it next to like any kind of more naturalistic show Mm. yeah But in the context of the show itself, it's like, oh, this looks so cool. And why does this feel so gritty and stuff like that? Mm. And it's because like they've gone for this extremely pushed, but very, very like in a subtle way. Like you look at those images and they're obviously very pushed, this kind of like blue-greeny. But it's hard to do that well.
0: Yeah, Mm. okay. I
2: still struggle with like getting a harsh look to look that nice where it's yeah. like this isn't supposed to look natural, but it is as well, you know. Yeah, It's yeah. a very hard line to hit there. That sounds
0: very nuanced. Yeah,
2: and there's a lot that goes into that. And with, with productions of that scale, as the colorist, you and the cinematographer are doing tests before. Yeah. You're actually like principal photography starts. You're doing tests with makeup. You're doing tests with costume, lighting, camera, all that to make sure that The look that you're trying to build for the show will
1: work throughout all the setups that you are going to light for. Interesting. So, is that because you'd be doing the color correction Mm -hmm. or the color grading in post? Mm -hmm making sure that every piece of clothing or way that they're going to light it is actually going to look good when you change it to a non-natural color that's
2: generally speaking yeah, yeah. and i haven't had a whole lot of experience in this because i just mostly work in the short form space at least for now but they call it it's like a show lot and you might create a series of show lots for say a tv show yeah so you might have two you might have a show lot for the day you might have a show lot for the night In the ideal world, you would collaborate with the cinematographer and all those other departments. Mm. And obviously, like certain shows and movies might not have budget for this, but in the ideal world, you could. You would test. It can't be too pushed. It has to be a little bit subtle because obviously it has to work in all the lighting conditions that you may have during the show. But yeah, so that's a bit of a higher level colorist thing of working in long form. That's what they'll do. But as I said, that's not really something that, Uh, you do in short form just because of like schedules and time and stuff like that I might be doing like four or five short form projects a week there's no time to be speaking to the cinematographer on it every one of those projects beforehand. Before they shoot it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's it. It's just not realistic.
1: That's a really interesting thing. I was sure that filmmakers planned that mm-hmm. sort of thing, but I never thought how much consultation would need to go into it. Yeah. Breaking Bad does it a lot as well, where there's like really big scenes or flashbacks or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like just the whole thing is washed yellow, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. And it's like so unnatural. But yep. they do it to convey a thematic reason, like a yes. connection exactly to drugs or whatever like that. Mm-hmm. But I never thought like… I just assumed, yeah, just assumed you'd just change it later. Yeah, without which… That and they might do. yeah, But yeah. Like, yeah, we're
2: understanding more and more, especially like digital film pipelines. The big nightmare, which happened a lot years ago, was people editing their entire production without any LUT on the footage. So it just looked flat and grey because digital cameras shoot log. Mm. Log, for anyone that doesn't know, is just a very flat and grey look that maintains the most dynamic range in the image, the most latitude. So it gives you the most room to play around with later. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you're just viewing that, it looks very gross and gray. But when digital cameras were first becoming a thing, people didn't fully understand that. And that's why there's like this big 10-year period where there's a lot of very boring, gray-looking media out in the world because there is this weird phenomenon where like say a director has viewed all their rough cuts in log And then you get it into grade, and they're so attached to that log. They don't even realize. Yeah, it happens. It's happened to me um, once or twice. Really? Yeah, you try. Yeah, when I was an editor, I was like, I slap that lut on <laughs> as soon as I get the footage. I
0: don't want to look at it yeah. unless it's got it on.
2: Yeah, because yeah, if, yeah, you find yourself in the room like just trying to introduce a little bit of contrast and saturation, even just to make the image look a little bit more natural. Yeah, and then you know, then you've got a director being like, oh, "Can we just take the contrast down a bit?" And You're taking it down, you're taking it down. It's like, "Oh god, this is getting..." closer and closer to just flat gray. Wow.
1: That's <laughs> a bit annoying, so. That's so funny. How do you navigate that if you've got a director that's come mm. in and you might suspect that they've got this <laughs> case of log love?
2: Yeah. I mean, you could approach it in like a million ways, I guess, but I mean, at the end of the day, you are at the behest of the director yeah. and the cinematographer. You hope that maybe the cinematographer is in the room and they can maybe talk the director down (laughs) or (laughs) something like that. Even if you are going for this quite low contrast look, it's like, okay, but there's still beautiful images at the end of the day. We can get something there. And yeah, and as long as everyone's happy in the room, you know.
0: What about if a director comes to you and doesn't really have an idea Mm -hmm. for a grade and the Mm. cinematographer... I suppose the cinematographer would step in though. Yeah. But yeah, because I imagine you'd have clients that maybe aren't as informed as to what's happening with the grade. For sure coming in and just how you sort of manage that. We worked on a project actually where they were like, there's this grass and it was brown. Mm -hmm. And they are like pump it up Mm. as green as you can Mm. where it looked unnatural. And I Mm. feel like everyone on our side was like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but they really wanted it and so obviously it's like something that you just need to do for the client but you're also the colorist the artist behind it mm. how does that kind of mesh within you
2: and, you know it's obviously really fun when you can be like I think the image should go this way and you show them when they're like that's awesome I really yeah. love that look let's strive for that And you're like awesome having a little bit more authorship over what you're doing obviously is the best case mm. you know you want to always feel like you are contributing creatively to it and by in large, you are. I don't feel like there's really any project that I felt completely like just a technician that I'm just literally just like c- converting the signal from one color space to another. Yeah, there's always a level of creativity to it, and my tastes, my proclivities go for this. So I'm just going to introduce that. They don't even probably notice that <laughs> I'm doing it, which is yeah. kind of half the point sometimes, but um, <laughs> yeah, there's definitely times use case you said where they're like, oh, you know, the grass looks too brown and boring can we make it green and it's like we can make it as green as you want (laughs) but it's an overcast day there's a thing called memory colors where it's like certain things like skin tones foliage, stuff like that that we all kind of know instinctively we know what they are what they should look like you can make the surroundings look whack and if the skin tones look right, you can often get away with it. Yeah, cool. If the skin tones look wrong, we instinctively know oh, there's something not right about this image. You can obviously utilise that too. Uh, genres like horror do all the time, like make the person look pale and sickly and yeah. you are going to know something's up. It's Like an uncanny valley response. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's just something like we don't even know. Sometimes we might not even be consciously aware of it but we're just like there's something not right. And, you know, it's the same as grass. You can make grass bright green, but if it's an overcast day, you're going to be like, that doesn't look right. We all know what grass looks like in certain lighting conditions. Yeah. Even You don't have to be in film to know that. It's just a human thing. (laughs) And so that was one case where it's like, I was trying to fight it back a little bit more naturally. Sometimes it's not an ideal lighting condition. And there is only, you know, the classic term fix it in post which we all hate, (laughs) there's a lot you can do, but that you are also capped by what, has been captured on the day Yeah, you often get the budget short film that's been given to you and it's really beautifully shot and you're like I think we can do something cool here and then they send you stills and the stills are from like La La Land or something and it's like uh, okay <laughs> well you understand that was shot on a budget of like 100 million dollars or whatever <laughs> and um, so you, you have to sometimes just talk them down and most of the time I think always I've never had someone to be like I don't understand why can't you make it look like La La Land it's right. like no they're always like I understand Obviously, we didn't shoot it with the lighting budget of that, but I love references. There's always something to be gained from whether it's, okay, I can see the kind of saturation levels and the contrast that we want to kind of approach and stuff like that. References are always, always uh, really handy to have.
0: So you're really involved in understanding a lot about lighting.
2: Yeah, relatively. I mean, it can really vary. Like colour, people get into colour from all different fields, You can be a really tech savvy kind of person and get into color. Or you can be someone like myself. I fell in love with just the ability to like manipulate and change an image. The technical side of it is something I had to learn along the way just Mm. to facilitate that creative side. Whereas some people might kind of almost come at it from the other angle. They're like, I love understanding the color science behind it all and stuff like that. I
0: actually had a question I think you might've just answered it, but I'm gonna ask in case it does open a new vein of morsel of information. I feel like you could get really suctioned into the technical aspect of color grading, but how much does it come to just how much it actually just, your eyes can perceive it and how it makes you feel?
2: Mm, I think at the end of the day, That's all it is, you know, especially earlier in my career, uh, somewhat to this day, is that you can get very caught up in what's the right way to do this technically. Yeah. Because there are a hundred different ways that you can approach the same problem. Yeah. And I would often get quite stifled. And this is also the problem, not the problem, but color grading these days it's difficult to find mentorship yeah. uh, mm. in color grading I essentially operated by myself just figuring it out for like years which there's obviously the positives to that for sure like you find your own way of doing it and you have to do a lot of trial and error and you become better doing that but also it's like I just wanted someone to tell me what is the right way to go about this product. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's fair um, coming back to the question I remember I was speaking to another colorist years ago and I was like oh you know like what do you do do you use this light here and do you grade before this step and then after this thing? Like, all these questions. He was like, yeah, yeah, I mean, you can do all of that. At the end of the day, if you're making a pleasing image, then that's the most important thing. Yeah. And that is the most important thing. Like, you can do things wrong technically, but if you make a pleasing image and the pleasing image stays throughout the pipeline of, like, rendering it out and all that and it's all good then, you know, you've done your job. Yeah. But obviously, I think you should pay attention to what technically is the correct way of doing certain things because it will save your life. Because you could do it the wrong way for like 100 projects and get away with it. And then one project, there's something that comes in and it's not playing well. And if you don't know how to work around that, then you can get yourself into some real trouble. So you definitely have to harness that technical knowledge. Yeah. But in my mind, it's always just been harnessing it to be more creative, essentially, and just to yeah make pleasing images. Yeah,
0: okay, this might be a bit of a nufty question, but bear with me. When you're correcting shots, right, just trying to make them look like they're matching. Mm-hmm. Can you do that by eye, or do yeah. you need the technology to help you determine if they're it's, actually? It's
2: definitely a bit of both. Like, by and large, you can do it by eye. And one of the things that I've definitely noticed is some people might like be born with it a little bit more. But it's like you just have to work on that eye. You just have to – the more and more images you look at, the more and more images you work on – you start to be able to look at an image straight away and be like, I understand that there's too much like cyan in this image and I have to push it the other yeah. way. You know, because many images will have what you call color casts where it's just whether it was like there's beautiful lighting, everything was great, but the walls in the room were red. So there is just a little bit of a red bounce across everything. Yeah, And wow. that's super easy to quickly correct. Yeah. And a lot of people will be almost blind to it until you show them. It's like I've just skewed everything down a bit and we call it color separation but it also like perceptually creates contrast as well where it's like look everything kind of like just the colors separate and everything becomes almost more colorful just by removing a little bit of red
1: out of that image kind of thing or it could be any way on the color scale could be a combination of you might be looking at an image just with your eye and being like something looks off about this and then you can look at the software and be yes. like oh there's probably too much of well, this. let's that, take that, that out it. and you see can, if it fixes you, it yeah you
2: can do it by eye but at the end of the day, like if I'm looking for what you call a perfect white point, they call it color balancing or anything like that, then you've got what we call video scopes. So yeah. I've just got a monitor to my right side usually, which just has a bunch of readouts with red, green, and blue levels. And I know that if I perfectly balance those red, green, and blue levels on a white point, so I'll make like a, a window. I'll select just uh, something I know in the image should be white. Mm. Yeah, like a white T-shirt or a yeah. white wall. Just select that, look at the scopes and be like, okay, I can see that the red channel is higher than the green or the blue channel. So there's obviously a skew in the reds. I don't even have to look at the image. You can just look at the scopes and move that red channel down with the control panels that I use. And as soon as they kind of look like they're matching and then I like oh, look cool, at the image yeah. again and it's like, yep, cool, that's white balance. Yeah. yeah, nice. You don't have to always do that. You can get into trouble with that sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> (laughs) like earlier, again, like years ago, I would be like color balancing a shot that was shot in tungsten lighting. It was supposed to be yellow. Oh, yeah. And it's like, don't balance that out. It's supposed to be yellow, you know, whereas the software is so good that you can make a room that was lit in this very yellow lighting. Like it's like the room we're in now, which is quite just like neutral white lighting. but the question you have to ask yourself is, should I be doing that? Yeah. Just because I can, should I? Yeah. <laughs> if the better, better projects you work on as you progress as a colorist, as you progress in any field, should ideally be like working on better, better things. And that as a colorist, funnily enough, means you kind of, a lot of the time, get to do a little bit less problem solving mm. as you start working on better stuff. You start working with better directors, better cinematographers, better budgets. Mm. The images that you're being fed are really, really good already and everything's been thought of. And so that leaves a lot of room for the creativity, which is always ideal. You don't have to solve these problems. You're just now chatting to the director and the cinematographer about... What do we want to do with this scene? And sometimes it's so subtle. Yeah. Some of the best stuff I've ever worked on. It's the subtlest grade. The beauty and the subtlety, it's it's so much more satisfying, I think, than like fixing a huge problem to like a mediocre image and making it like a little bit better. Yeah, sure. It's like working on a, the most beautiful <laughs> image and just increasing it that extra like 10%. And then making that cohesive throughout the piece. It's a really fun process because it's often the last thing you do. Yeah. And it's a big, big move. Yeah. Like the edits are working and all that. But often the comment from directors will be, it's finally looking like I imagined it. Like it's never never looked like I imagined it. And now it is. And that's like the best
1: comment you can get. It's just, this is actually becoming what I dreamed. So let's say you're editing a scene. You've worked to craft your color to match what that scene's going to look like. Mm -hmm. Would you then copy-paste that across all of the different shots in that scene? Wide shot, close-up, mid-shot? Or is it about tweaking? Or do you Mm. do each shot individually? Yes, it's a really good question. It completely depends on the project. If you've got a wide
2: and then a shot-reverse shot of the close-up interaction, let me grade the wide first because that'll establish just the actual room itself and what it is. If something's lit really well oftentimes you grade that wide and you can copy and paste yeah, right. and by and large it gets everything at least into the world awesome. it's like great everything's at least looking in the world and then you'll have to always do some separate work to each shot whether it's what we call like shaping so kind of like windowing off certain parts of the image and just drawing the eye you know shaping around someone's face or something like that Yeah, cool. there might still be slight colour variations to an image that you have to bounce out but that is the idea Deal is to like get like a project where it's like five scenes in this film. Each scene has been lit very consistently. So just create a look for each scene and it all copies through. Yeah, it's like That's great. That works. But yeah, then there's the other side of it where due to circumstances on the day, there's these two shots that are supposed to be happening right next to each other in mm-hmm. the edit mm-hmm. are vastly different. And then that's when you have to go and use all the tricks that you've learned to make them feel the same and usually you can the worst case is when and i hate doing this and i don't have to do it much but Sometimes you have to sacrifice the better shot to look like a bit more like the worst shot. Oh, you Because really? you'll, ne- you'll never get the worst shot to look as good as the great shot. Yeah. So you have to sometimes mitigate the great shot just to bring it up a bit closer to the bad. That's super rare and I haven't had to do that in a long time. That's just a very like disheartening thing. <laughs> yes. <'cause> it's like, <laughs> I didn't get into this to make good shots look worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Because oftentimes at the end of the day, especially if it is like some kind of like uh, short film or something like telling a narrative, what's more important is like you don't want to take someone out and be like, why does this these shots look different, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So if it is like the only recourse we have is to make this amazing shot look a little bit worse so that these two shots now aren't jarring. With editing, you know, a good edit is never noticed. So yeah, a bit of a mentor to me is uh, Daniel Stonehouse. Mm -hmm. And I think he did a podcast. He had a great saying that really resonated with me. Is like great color grading looks like great cinematography. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, right. where it's Yeah, like, it's just subtle like that.
0: What you were mentioning about how it, the color grade should feel seamless, in whatever you're watching, right? Has your experience working in this area ruined some of your film watching experiences? Like, are you always mm. noticing grades, or are you able to like tap out, or is it completely dependent on how decent the grade is?
2: It definitely hasn't ruined it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, because just sometimes, I know what you mean. yeah. I feel like I noticed that more when I was more an editor, and yeah, stuff okay. like that. You'd see edits that you'd be like, I don't know how good a decision that was, the way they edited that. But with grading, it's like there's so many talented people. I never really noticed. I think once or twice I've noticed someone hasn't tracked a power window, meaning you do a window over someone's face and you brighten it up a bit. And then you you should, like, if that person moves throughout the scene, you should track it to their face, right? I've noticed once or twice on certain things, like, I can see that they haven't tracked that power window. And it's like, (laughs) as soon as they move, that the wall behind them is now bright. (laughs) But uh, that's super rare. You can obviously critique it and be like, oh, you know, I liked that or I didn't like that. But it just makes me appreciate it a lot more. I just idolize so many filmmakers because it's like, I don't understand, like, how that's so beautiful. I'm just so amazed.
0: yeah, true. I always just come out of the cinema and people be talking about the storyline, and I'll be like, "No, how do they do that?" Mm. I'm more intrigued. Absolutely. I want to see the behind the scenes. Yeah, so. if,
2: if anything, I rarely walk out of a film. Yeah. Like a lot of people are very critical, being like, "Oh, that was terrible" and stuff. And it's like, yeah, I mean, maybe the writing, the storyline was terrible, but I am so impressed that they just got it all the way through yeah. like the, <laughs> the cinema because I have like a you know a general knowledge of like just how much work is behind just getting something to that point. Mm. Like say what you want about all the big superhero films and stuff, but the visual effects industry that do what they do with those films is insane. Yeah, They're Mm. extremely overworked. Mm. People always talk about, oh, this visual effect was shit and that. It's like you you don't understand what they're doing and the the, (laughs) the time that they're given to do it. It's insane. They're gods (laughs) at work. Yes, you walk out of a film like one of those and it's like, Yeah, that was terribly written, but my God, it looked good. Yeah,
0: yeah, Yeah, totally. So you've mentioned before about how you are able to sort of influence your creative choices in color grades. Mm. What kind of creative choices are you making?
2: It's very subtle. It is a difficult one to talk about. You might have a proclivity towards pushing your images a little bit like cyan in the highlights or something like that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like little things like that. And I'm not saying that's mine, but um, you do that and you don't even mention it. There's certain little things that you'll be like, let me just see if I can sneak this in because it'll make an image that I prefer. Yeah. And you do it. And if no one says anything in the room and you're like, how are we feeling about this? And they're like, I love that. That looks great. It's like, great. Awesome. Like I've gotten my little thing in there. Yeah. And then also just like generally, like I set up all my grades in a way that I've already got a few things happening that I just generally like. And I think are subtle enough that never skew the image much, but always skew it in a direction that is pleasing. Yeah. I almost never will just like start from log in the session with the client in the room.
0: Yeah.
2: I'll always get it at least standardized into somewhere a bit more decent so they never have to see the log. If they want to
1: see the log, of course, we can show them that. I suppose just thinking about working with clients, so whether that's, you know, larger agencies or just a single person who's hired you to create their short film or whatever. Some things that you've had to navigate in your role, things that you found difficult Mm -hmm. um, and had to learn from. Yeah.
2: I mean, there's a lot of challenges for sure. It changes every project, really. But I mean, one of the big challenges that I can think of, this kind of comes back to like the technical knowledge a bit. This will get a laugh if any other colorists ever listened to this. Like there's this big gamma shifting issue that is the bane of many amateur colorists' uh, (laughs) existence where like you grade it, it looks great, you output it, And then you watch it on any other video player just to review it outside of the software and it looks wrong. Mm. Uh, Uh, Years and years ago, that was like a bit of an issue where I was like, you know, pulling my hair out. Why does it look wrong every time I export? And it's just a foundational, like, as soon as you understand, like, technically what's happening with it, you can fix it. Yeah. And it's no big problem. It's like the one question that plagues color grading forums to this day like <laughs> people like pin at the top like read this yeah to, and to fix this issue like stop asking about this oh, issue wow. issues like that i would pull my hair out over for sure challenges like in the room obviously like you get better and better at it a few years ago when i was a freelance colorist getting people in the room is always quite daunting to be like they're right in the room with you they're going to be asking for things you're going to have to Daunt be able to right. like Yeah, do it on the spot and do it well and execute. Inevitably, you still face those issues. Something isn't working the way. Of course, it's only when people in the room,
1: (laughs) it's a classic thing. This isn't
2: working the way it's worked 100 million times before. (laughs) It's just the nature of the job. But yeah, you get better at handling that pressure and stuff like that. But that was definitely earlier on. I remember when you
1: worked here, there was a few jobs where you'd done a really nice color grade on it. And then after we'd given it to the client, they'd then posted it with an Instagram filter over the <laughs> top. <time. laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can that
1: was a bit of a bugbear. Yeah, <laughs> that, that stuff, that, that, that can still sometimes
2: happen. The big one for me that I've always hated is like uh, you work on music video. And… If you look at any of the best music videos on like YouTube, the thumbnail is always just a beautiful still from the music video. And so, you know, you you make a, this beautiful music video and you give it to them, and I will take a bunch of stills and give it to them just because it's easier and also it mitigates the fact of them taking a bad still and using totally. it. Yeah. But a lot of the time, some music videos I've worked on, the thumbnail will be like... From the still photography of the day mm. you know oh. it's like not part of the clip at all and it's got like a much more pushed look as still photography does and that's yeah. fine and it just, just <laughs> annoys me so much like, you're trying to have this super cool music video and you want it to obviously like be considered in the echelon of all the other music videos so you, there's a format there mm-hmm, that yeah, you have yeah. to like kind of stick to and part of that format is use a still from your actual clip <laughs> yeah. that. so that annoys me yeah uh, that's yeah. fair there's a lot of that and then yeah as you said people posting it with a filter what
0: about experiences with clients that have gone really well and what Mm. would you put that down to
2: i think the ones that have gone really really well whether it's the cinematographer or the director we're both in absolute sync with where we think this needs to sit yeah cool we've both got similar influences so yeah there's certain directors that are just what their tastes are Exactly aligned with my tastes. So I'm mm. like, we're referencing these things and these things in the session. We're like, oh my God, these things are so cool. Let's get into this realm. And you know, when a director of cinematographer feels like, you know, the colors that they're working with absolutely sees their vision. Yeah. Then they feel a lot more comfortable in the room. And all of a sudden the room becomes a lot more, which we always strive for, particularly at Crayon, we want it to feel almost like a day off from work. You're just here to enjoy it. Yeah. We're having fun. Like it's a really fun thing that we do and it's a collaborative process that we just want everyone to be a part of and enjoy. The best projects that I've worked on have definitely been like that.
0: That sounds like fun. Yeah, (laughs) uh, yeah, it
2: is. That would be one of, if not the biggest factors to why I do what I do today. You know, that's passion. You're passionate for that. You know, mm. you're just striving for something, your ideal idea of what your job is. Yeah. You know? I remember one of the big factors of why I got into color grading, or at least like got into post, but now that I think about it also color grading, was I got my honors film graded at Sound Firm. Mm-hmm. And um, I sat in the color suite with the colorist, and I was there with my cinematographer. And I was just so like, this is a really cool way to spend your day, is what I thought. <laughs> like, the colorist gets to do this every day. Yeah. Just sits behind this big desk with all these controls <laughs> and just works on these images. And, you know, they like had coffee coming in. <laughs> it was like, just like, it was so cool and i think from that i was like i know something in post i could definitely do because yeah. i'd like the idea of this being my workplace yeah you know like a lot of people say like that can't work behind a desk all day and it's like yeah but if you saw this desk you probably could <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. now that i think about it back that's probably also why i always wanted to like push my career towards color yeah it was yeah again probably because of that one experience Mm. And I had two experiences. I won't name the other one, but I got my third year film, my bachelor graded at a different competitive post house that was just as big. And in the room, I felt like I was an annoyance. You know, I was a student. I love grading student films. I really... Foster the idea of it partly because the reason I'm doing what I'm doing is because I was a student yeah. and I felt like I got brought into this collaborative process and I felt like my opinion was respected whereas this other one that I went to I felt like they were just trying to get me in and get me out and no one wants that no. so it was good to like experience kind of almost both ends of the spectrum Yeah. Like, so that's a nice little shout out to Soundfirm there <laughs> uh, they did a great job yeah well, my next question was what makes a good
1: colorist versus mm. uh, not so good one
2: yeah I mean I definitely think I think number one is probably like a lot of things. You can't have a lot of ego going into it. You never want to force your image into someone else's thing. You know, it has to be like this. This is the best way it's going to be. Yeah. And just be stuck at that. At the end of the day, you're at the behest of the director. You're at the behest of the cinematographer. It's their image Mm -hmm. that you're collaborating on with them to make as good as it can be. So I think, yeah, number one is you can't be too attached to your image. You can obviously fight for it. If you think it is like this is the best thing, you can fight for it. But obviously, you have to be careful with fighting for it. Don't be too like this is it. It has to be this. So a good one is just treating it as a bit more of a collaborative process. And this is generally speaking. But a bad one is just, you know, not being flexible with the director and the cinematographer's intent. If you are a good colorist, you can convince them that your image is the best way and that's like a bit of an art in itself yeah in the room is almost convincing them there's techniques to that too you like give them three options and obviously the best one is yours (laughs) you like you make the you make the other two just not as nice that's
0: so funny um
2: i've never done that i think that's more of like a long-form thing perhaps as well because you can kind of option it out a bit easier I think just being malleable in the room is a good thing for a good colorist. And then obviously all the knowledge and the skills you should have probably as well. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If the cinematographer is really talented and everything went right on the day, this pretty much looks how we want it. Yeah. But I'm just thinking, can we maybe enhance this and that? These little things. And it's like, I've definitely been a culprit earlier in my career of just changing an image because you're trying to
1: show show that that you you
2: can can do do it. it. And it's like, again, it always goes back to like, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah. And yeah. you have to always take
1: the director's and the cinematographer's intent into account. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about how you manage multiple projects at once, if you, if you are doing multiple projects at once, and then also how you just manage your work-life balance. It's uh, definitely gotten easier for me now
2: when I started doing color and just freelance in general, some of the directors at Monster and Bear can attest, like I worked like 16 to 18 hours a day. That was another benefit of Monster and Bear. was like they were fine with me using their equipment to freelance as long as it was after hours. So I would often do like eight hours here and then I'd immediately start on my freelance stuff, do another eight hours. I, would, I did that for like two, three years. And that was, I think that was really good albeit bad in terms of burnout. (laughs) That was when I was in my early 20s. So I think I had the energy for it. Yeah. I always think like, you know, if you're going to do that, that's the time to do it. Like what else are you doing really? (laughs) I didn't care about much else. I really had the idea like I want to establish myself in my 20s to like kind of set myself up for the rest of my life kind of thing. You can't think like that all the time. So earlier on, it was definitely like there was no life. Mm. <laughs> but at the same time, I really enjoyed what I was doing. You mm. know? So I wouldn't change it. But eventually, as I was like working for Monster and Bear and freelancing, it was becoming a lot. Mm-hmm. And then it just happened that I'd gotten this other opportunity at Crayon eventually. Yeah. And it's a good thing that Crayon, they've got a huge respect for work-life balance. If things are looking to go over, let's talk about it.
1: Mm. And they'll firstly go to like, well, can we schedule this somewhere else? And stuff like that. We've got through most of our questions, but we do have a little run of questions we put out when we were talking to people about interviewing you. We did ask around if there was anyone that had any questions oh, yeah. about color grading. And so we've got a little list of questions from other people that right? we wanted to run past cool. you, yeah. some less serious than others. <laughs> <laughs> One of our internal editors, Michael Repich, he had the very basic question, do you like the color grade for The Matrix? I do. But I'd have to almost counter
2: with another question. Which <laughs> which grade are you talking about? True. Because the theatrical grade for The Matrix differs from the DVD release of The Matrix. Right. The classic one that we're all aware of, the green, the, the green. very green push, that yep. was the DVD release. Ah. I could be wrong. I remember reading something about it Something like there was an actual error in the DVD release to push it that green. Really? <laughs> I could be wrong. I remember reading something to that extent. And it's like, wow, like that's insane because I love that green push because yeah, it's that yeah. green-blue. It's the blue of the the real world to the green of the mate. you know, it works. Because then if you look at, I think it's the 4K Blu-ray release, mm. they regraded it and it looks way more boring, like way more just neutral and normal. Wow. And it's like, what are you doing? People, <laughs> yeah. This is
1: why people love
0: it. <laughs>
2: Yeah, among uh, other things. Uh, yeah, like, so I guess like yeah. like short answer is I love it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Oh man. The next one is from Josh, our DOP, oh. um, Josh Mitchell Frey. He said, know him well. "You know him well, yeah." <laughs> He said, what do you think about HDR? Do you Mm. see it as a big shift in Mm. how we're going to work moving forward or is it a bit of a gimmick like 3D? And I'd like to just preface, I have no idea what any of that means.
2: So, (laughs) yeah, so HDR is high dynamic range. So for years and still now, especially what I work with short form, we work in SDR, so standard dynamic range. So if you imagine your brightness level can go from 0 to 100, right? That's SDR. And then HDR can go from zero to Mm 10,000. So your brightness levels can just be a lot brighter, which is a lot more true to actual brightness levels. Like if you look at the sun or
1: something like
2: that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so essentially HDR just allows us to effectively see more brighter whites, And stuff like that. So it's coming more in the long form space, as I said. So short form is still mostly SDR, just because mostly when short form is being displayed, it's being displayed on phones, laptops, consumer TVs, which some consumer TVs are beginning to like preview in HDR. Like they, some can go up to like a thousand nits or something like that. I think, I don't think it's a gimmick. I definitely think it is the future. It's still for the upper echelon. Yeah. Because like to preview a full HDR monitor, I don't know, it was like, anything from 15 to 30k. Oof. It's a lot. Some people don't utilize it as it kind of should be utilized. Yeah. As an example, I think they like re-released the Lord of the Rings trilogy with a HDR grade on it. And I thought that was really well done because it was still for the most part SDR, right? Mm-hmm. It was still mostly within that 0 to 100 range in luminance. But then certain parts of it, when Gandalf came back to life whatever Mm -hmm. spoiler warning it's lord of the rings (laughs) (laughs) it's like over 20 years old you've
1: had enough time yeah it it
2: was like there's this insanely like bright white bit you know if you viewed that on a measurement thing that bit would peak up to like four thousand nits or something you know so you can just kind of utilize it in a creative way but also it's being used more and more by streaming services like netflix they demand it now you'll do both a hdr and an sdr grade And again, I don't have a whole lot of experience, but from my understanding, they'll do the HDR grade and then they'll do like a tone map it down to SDR from that. Right, okay. It's like easier than I think going from SDR to HDR. Sure. But yeah, so that's essentially what HDR is. It's like the big new thing, Mm. uh, at least in the last three to five years. Okay. It's not available to everyone, but I think in the next, you know, like ten years it'll it will be a lot more accessible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For just everyone. And you don't even have to use it, but it just gives more latitude to the image. And to me, that just means much more creative freedom and mm. more options. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's still better than like anything else. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Another question, this is from my friend Jordan Dortovich. I think we've touched a little bit on this before, but I'll still ask it. What's your order of operations? Mm. What kind of shot do you start with? Mm. And then what's your first primary adjustment? Mm. Like exposure, Mm -hmm. contrast, color balance, et cetera.
2: Yeah, great question. So in terms of like what I would grade first, as I said before, if it's like a narrative thing and there's like some kind of wide shot for a scene, I'll probably look at that first just because, you know, it kind of informs the rest of the shots a bit. But if it's like a commercial, I'll reel through it. But for the most part, I'll just probably start from shot one and just go ahead. I will get everything at least in a nice space first and that goes into the second part of the question where the first thing I'll do, like a technical transform, which is effectively like a lot, but it's a little bit different in a nuanced way. Essentially, though, it's just saying, all right, what camera has this shot on? So, say it's Ari. So, Ari shoots in log C. So, you're essentially just saying it, take this log C image and put it into whatever I'm displaying, which is Rec. 709 Gamma 24, which is just the classic if you're doing anything really in SDR, like we talked about, like standard dynamic range, if it's going out to phones, TVs, stuff like that. Yeah. You just do it out to that it's just the standard so i'll do a technical transform that at least gets it to that it's effectively a lot it just moves it from log to that and then i've got a whole node structure that i won't get into of like certain things happen before that technical transform i'll color balance before that technical transform i'll get i'll, I'll make my broad adjustments before that in grading we call primary adjustments or primary adjustment is Anything to do with your just overall color, overall exposure, overall contrast. It's just affecting the entire image. You can do a lot of what you need to do in just that. In fact, the colorists from 10, 15 years ago or more, that's all they had. They didn't have all the bells and whistles that we have now. So like their experience was just the fundamentals. And because of that, I think that's why like still like there's those colorists that are so good because there was the only option was they had red, green, blue. Mm. How much do I take red out? Do I put blue in? Bam, bang bang, 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 And you can make beautiful images just like that. And now obviously we have all these other things. And then you've got what you call secondaries, which is where you can put a window over someone's face. Let's just brighten just their face. Mm. Or the the wall in the background's green. Can we change it to like blue? That's a secondary. You can't do those isolated adjustments overall. Yep. So you've got primary and secondary. So mostly I'll just do primary first. And a lot of the times, if it's, a, if it's a well-shot image, primary is all you need. You can do some really, really good work with just your primary adjustments. And then you just fall back on secondary if you really need to. And usually secondary is more of a commercial thing. Long form, you don't get the time. The small amount of long form I've done and just from talking to other colorists, you really just don't get the time to touch secondaries.
0: Yeah. Know?
2: Working through so many shots, you don't to have like a thousand shots to get through. Oh my god. You've gosh. got like three days. That's good too. I know colorists that... We'll do like um,
1: 800 shots in a day.
0: Holy, mo- oh, yeah. So we get
1: like 20 seconds a I, shot. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> what? Okay. Well, thank you for that very technical question, Jordan. We do appreciate the, yeah. the, the complex questions. Yes, the, yes. I, mean, I
2: love it. Thank you. Yeah.
1: We have two more questions. One comes from another internal here at Monster and Bear Paris she wants to know what's the difference between grading shot footage versus if you were to be grading an animation. Oh, interesting. I often wondered this too for a while. Colorists
2: do get credited on 3D, like animated Mm. films and stuff. And I was like, why is that? Because obviously if you have some kind of understanding of 3D animation, you're like, they can do anything they want. Exactly, It's, It's not like lighting a real scene. It's, you know, they're lighting it in a computer. So grading a real shot is just, if it's shot on digital, it comes in as log. If it's shot on film... It's still kind of this log-ish kind of thing. So it's all pretty much the same. I've done a tiny little bit of 3D, but I remember reading an article talking about like what it is, and it made so much sense, it's so simple, that often they'll get colorists to work on 3D because once you've got the whole film or scene that's rendered out in 3D, and it's mostly there, but you're like, oh, the floorboards in this scene in Toy Story are not as brown as we want them Mm. it's a lot less expensive to get a colorist to make that adjustment after the fact than it is to get the cg people to change that and re-render it yeah Yeah. it's just like the resource management really so Mm. there's probably much more to it i haven't had a heap of experience but it's just sometimes it makes more sense Mm. to have a colorist pass over your film from a 3d standpoint yeah i've done a little bit of 3d commercial and it's basically that we kind of want this bit to be brighter and this bit to be like a little bit more blue and stuff. It's a lot quicker and a lot more um, inexpensive for you to get a colorist to do that.
0: No, totally. That makes so much sense. Okay. The next question actually comes from me and it's okay. really silly. <laughs> I almost am, I feel a bit too silly asking it because you've had such really nice, eloquent responses. Okay, <laughs> this is so, what I've been waiting for. <laughs> so humans have three receptors in their eyes so they can see red, green, blue. Yeah. Mantis shrimp have 12 receptors. Uh-huh. So they can see on the UV spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Let's just say that films can record all those different spectrums. Yeah. If you had to show a mantis shrimp a film with a really good color grade, what, <laughs> what, what <did> <laughs> film would you show a <laughs> mantis what shrimp? Oh,
2: wow. <laughs> There's so many. But it might not even be a film. It might be a series. So the director... Nicholas Winning Refn, if I'm not butchering that name. Probably most known for films like Drive. Yeah, yeah. There's certain films he's done after that that weren't as successful, but I love directors that are just like pushing mm. a look. Stylistically, they just have something different. Neon Demon. Yeah. Stunning. Yeah. That's definitely a film. And you know… It's called the Neon Demon. It's got some pretty like far out there colors. If I'm showing it to a mantis strip, it's like, <laughs> how many colours can you see? I'd be like, i that film. But then there's like some of my favorite grades are perhaps a little bit more subtle. Mm. Yeah. I saw a great meme recently. Where it was um, it was like, I'll put it in the words of the mantis shrimp. It was like two color spectrums side by side. So, you know, just the color wheel. Yeah. The left was like all the colors a human can see. And then the right was all the colors a mantis shrimp can see. And they were exactly the same because we're human. We can't see it. <laughs> I thought it was very funny.
0: Do you ever wish you were a mantis shrimp <laughs> and you could see more?
2: I, I do now, yeah. It's, now, now you got me thinking about it, absolutely. We originally had
0: it that I would try and, like, drop in shrimp questions as often as possible yeah. in this podcast. But you had such really good answers. So I was like, I don't want to make a joke is, out of this. It is,
2: like crazy though when you do think about how there are other animals and stuff that just have a completely different (laughs) perception on the world they can just see so like to be able to see like just uv and infrared and stuff like that yeah you can't imagine it come back to color though it's like we've kind of now approached the point where like we've got what you call color spaces that now tout themselves as being like If you work within this color space, you're working with every color that the human eye can ever see, which is nice. And it always sounds cool
1: when they say that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Well, we're kind of coming to the end. I suppose one thing that we like to wrap up with is what's something that you most love about your job? I think from the day to day, just the environment that I work in Mm -hmm. is just
2: such a nice environment to be a part of. For many factors, it's a really beautiful space. I'm sure you guys can attest. I love the people that I work with. They're really great people. And then just the job itself, like a lot of people be like, how do you sit in a dark room all day? But it's like, you know, I'm, I've got a portal into like just some, I'm looking at beautiful stuff all yeah. the time. Yeah, It's really fun. I like also just explaining what I do to people
1: sometimes. Because <laughs> sure, yeah.
2: they, like, a lot of people have never heard of No, this, yeah. you know. Totally. And it's always fun trying to think of like new and creative ways to, you know, whether it's like human Instagram filter mm-hmm. or like I do, you know, Photoshop, right? Yeah. It's mm. like that, but for like moving images, it's like, it's <laughs> always fun to just try to like explain to them what it is. Because, yeah. you know, it's it's just, I can almost guarantee like this person has never heard of this thing. That yeah. I do. yeah. So you're like, colorist. And they're like, what's that? Like, like hair? <laughs> no. <laughs> that's the funny sometimes. thing. You do like hashtag colorist on Instagram and it, you just get put on all these like hair things. That's so like, That's
0: funny. mostly
2: what people know a colorist is <laughs> but, Yeah, I think that's generally just what I love about it.
1: Cool. Well, is there anything you would like to plug, Sam, whether that's uh, Instagram or websites or anything like that before we wrap up?
2: I've never had to plug anything. (laughs) (laughs) I guess on Instagram, we are crayon. is the Insta for crayon. It's the, uh, the color house that I work at. S. K. McCarthy is my personal. And is yeah. there any specific styles you want people to come at you with particular color grading oh, jobs that you're yes, looking for? Yes, please. I love probably like my passion would be fashion films. Mm-hmm. What comes into that too is music videos often because they kind of utilize themselves as fashion films as well. Yeah. But really, I'm here for anything. I love it all. If you you know if you're passionate about images, I think you know we'll have a fun time. Yeah,
1: great. Yeah. I see. yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being here and being so generous with no, all you your guys and your time. It's been awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Sam. Absolutely. Thanks, Sam. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks so much for listening to our episode. So That's How It's Done is a Monster and Bear production. You can find our work on any social media channel at Monster and Bear or visit our website, monsterandbear.com.au. We also have a podcast hashtag, So That's How It's Done.